Again, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is with great excitement that we get to bring a new series starting today, and which will be covering uh, really the, the introduction of Genesis, that is chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis. And so today we start with an overview of what we'll be covering, but as we do, let us begin with those famous first words of Genesis, chapter 1, simply verse 1. Follow along with me as we begin the study. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of God, and as I hope we shall soon see, there is so much power packed in these words. But for now, we'll close with that. So if you would, bow your heads in prayer with me and ask for God's blessing to be upon our time. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and begin a new study to get to look at this book of Genesis, God. I pray that as we do this, it might be a time of refreshment, Lord. It might be a time of review. As we begin covering things that many of us have heard before, and yet as we cover things that none of us can hear too often. God, we love you, and we pray as always that you remove all distractions from our minds. We pray for any unbeliever who is here, those who have not yet put their faith in your son, God, might this morning in this coming study be used by you to bring them to a saving faith. Holy Spirit, be at work in their minds, be at work in their hearts now. And for your people here this morning, God, build us up, encourage us, God. Give us confidence as we continue to live out the calling you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Have you ever pretended to understand something that someone's communicating to you, even though you have no idea what they're actually talking about? The nervous laughter makes me think this is common. I think we do this often. Maybe it's happened to you when someone tells you a joke that references maybe some cultural event that you don't really know anything about, but because the people around you are laughing, you, you just nervously laugh and say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's good, right? And you just hope no one realizes that you're a fraud in that moment. Those of you who are students, you're about to start up again, and you're about, you perhaps have experienced this when your teacher in a class references a book that you were supposed to have read already, maybe even over summer break. And so in the lesson, the, the teacher makes a lot of references to the narrative and to the story and to the themes, and you have no idea what, they, what they're talking about because you haven't read that book. You read some cliff notes online, but that's about as far as you got. But in the midst of that lesson, as the teacher says, does anyone have any questions, what do you do? You say, no, of course I have no questions. I've read the book. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so you simply, again, nod your head in agreement to try to pretend that, like everyone else, you know exactly what's being communicated. Or perhaps a third example might come home, might strike close to home for some of us. Imagine, hypothetically, you're having a conversation with your spouse. Your spouse is talking about a conversation you supposedly had just yesterday, a conversation in which you maybe agreed to take care of something around the house, Maybe you agreed to follow up with, with some information that, that you all need to decide on. And even though your spouse is really confident about that conversation, you have no idea what they're talking about. But instead of admitting it, instead of saying, I'm sorry, honey, I, I, don't, I don't recall that, as you've said so many times in the past, you nod your head with that deer-in-the-headlight look, and you say, yes, yes, I remember that conversation, and don't worry, I'm on top of things. And you're praying in that moment that your, we'll say hypothetically speaking, your wife doesn't figure out that you're lying through your teeth. You have no idea what she's talking about. I've heard of other husbands and spouses doing that. I've never, I've never done that myself. But I think it's a common occurrence from what I hear in counseling sessions. We do this on a regular basis. And in all of these types of environments, and, and countless others like it, in those moments, the person who is speaking with us is is assuming that we have a certain level of foundational facts already established. They're building their story, their joke, their lesson, that conversation based upon the assumption that you already have a pretty good understanding of where this is headed. But of course, when you lack that foundation, when you don't have those basic facts in place, when you have no memory of these things, there's nothing to build upon. And so you're left kind of aimlessly nodding your head in agreement, but you are unable to either understand what's being said or even then respond in an appropriate way. 
This can happen in, in many interpersonal relationships, and it can certainly happen when it comes to our approach to the faith, specifically when it comes to our study of Scripture. For countless times, you will have this experience where you read a passage, say, in the New Testament, in which an author appears to be quoting something. Maybe the language is blocked off, and you think, huh, I think I've heard that before. I think I've read that somewhere. Maybe the author vaguely alludes to some Old Testament story that you think, I think that was taught to me in children's church. But you really don't fully grasp what is being said. And so even when you come to, say, the very end of Scripture to a passage like Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, a passage that is intended to just inspire believers, motivate believers, remind believers of the beautiful picture you have in front of you, you find these words of John, that while no doubt partially beautiful, are missed when you don't have that foundation. You, you read words like this. John, seeing this vision of heaven, says, He showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservant will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will have no need of the of light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So many believers would silently nod their head in agreement to these words of John. And so many believers might think, I think I know what John's talking about. I mean, I, I know the lamb refers to Jesus, and that stuff about a tree kind of sounds like Eden, but that's about as far as the recollection goes. And as a result, while we might walk away with a, a basic concept or a guess as to what John's saying, we cannot see the beauty of it. We cannot appreciate the glory and the depth of this vision of John, and we certainly can't experience the level of joy and excitement that, that John the Apostle certainly was experiencing as he saw those visions, as he saw those symbols, as he understood fully what it meant because John saw it while standing on a solid foundation, biblical knowledge, in terms of the history of God's people, in terms of the themes that God has presented time and time again throughout Scripture. As believers... We must understand that we daily need to be standing on that foundation. We need to have that background information of facts, of theology, of history, if we're really going to appreciate the message of Scripture. And in order to do that, you can read a number of books of the Bible, but there is, I think, no better place to begin than where we are beginning today, the book of Genesis. For in the book of Genesis, as we'll see over the course of these next number of weeks, we see a book that is so much greater than just a collection of stories that we teach kids. It's so much more than just some apologetic argument about creationism. It's the story of us. It explains where we came from. It explains ultimately where we're headed. And if we fail to appreciate the images and the messages of this book, Oh, we will miss out on so much of the beauty of Scripture. We'll fail to appreciate the story as it's been laid out for us by the gracious and sovereign hand of God. And so it is my prayer in the coming months that as we explore the history of Genesis, as we explore these rich themes, we might walk away with that much greater of a foundation so that as we come to the end of the Bible in passages like Revelation 22, we too might rejoice and exult in the same way John did. With that being said, this morning, we'll begin, as I mentioned, with a brief survey of things we will be covering. And so as we do this, we'll be approaching the text in a bit different way than we usually do. If you've been with us before, you know we typically take a passage and go verse by verse. But today, I want to take a step back. Because I think it's vitally important to appreciate Genesis, both in its history, as well as in its various themes. And so with that being said, let us turn back to Genesis and begin considering this first study of history. And when I say this, I don't mean the historical events that happen in Genesis, not quite yet. What I really mean is look at the book of Genesis as a historical document in terms of its context and the canon, in terms of its author, and then ultimately in terms of its ultimate um, purpose. As we begin, 
we begin with perhaps the most obvious point regarding Genesis as a document, and that is its place in the canon. Now, even if this morning was the very first time in your life you turned to the book of Genesis, you can probably figure out the order of books when it comes to Genesis. You know where it is in the Bible. It's the first book, right? Many of you who grew up in church perhaps learned that song that that taught you the order of the books of the Bible. And even if you were the worst kid in the class, you probably at least got Genesis, Exodus, and then that's where you left off. But you at least got that first one. We get that Genesis is the first book in the Bible, but what's not as obvious to a lot of us is the fact that Genesis as a book was not written as a standalone book. That is to say, Genesis really is one of five volumes that create that concept that we know as the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, took meaning scrolls or books, and those books are, if you know the song, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These books comprise that one great work, a work that covers an incredible number of events, particularly in the nation of Israel. As we already read in Genesis 1-1, it begins with that first grand event, the creation of everything. As the story progresses through the book of Genesis and all the way to Deuteronomy, it leads us all the way up to that pivotal moment when the people of God are about to begin their conquest of the promised land. And it leaves off with the eventual death of Moses as the people are are literally looking out over the land that they are about to take possession of. If you know anything about those events and More importantly, if you know anything about what comes in between, you then understand how pivotal of a role these books must have played to Israel. For you understand the incredible number of events that are covered from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Deuteronomy around the year 1400 BC. For in these books you have those stories so many of us know so well. Stories of the flood. Stories about Abraham, you have the entire story of the Exodus contained with it the great figure of Moses. As the story progresses, you have Mount Sinai, the wanderings in the wilderness. You have those books of the law that are being presented, books that were intended to then guide the people of God as they enter into the promised land. The significance of these books is only magnified when you continue to read past the Pentateuch. For in case you haven't noticed before, these books of the Bible are referenced countless, a countless number of times throughout the rest of Scripture. In the, the New Testament alone, you have arguably hundreds of references to these first five books of the Bible. Overall, you have thousands of references to the Pentateuch, many of which are contained just in these first 11 chapters. As you get to the New Testament, you understand so many of the Old Testament historical figures that New Testament authors explore are figures found here in Genesis, found here in the Pentateuch. And so you see how important of a figure Adam becomes, as the Apostle Paul speaks of Adam in Romans. You understand how important people like Moses are as you hear Jesus Christ speak of the person, the the historical person of Moses and the role he played. If you were with us through our study of 1 John, you heard John reference Cain as a primary example of what it means to hate your brother. Time and time and time again, Old Testament and New Testament authors are alike are referencing these books. And they do so as a reminder that what they teach is nothing new. It is nothing unique. It's traced all the way back to the beginning. You remove that beginning then, and it all begins to unravel. The worldview of Jesus, the worldview of the apostles crumbles. It is in these books of the Bible that you not only find important stories, nor just important figures, but but you find those patterns that are then picked up by other authors. Language, symbols, types. Things that are easy to miss if you're not incredibly familiar with the Pentateuch, but things that are so obvious, the more you understand it. For as you understand it more and more, suddenly you you realize, oh wow, God has referenced as the creator a ton. You understand how frequently the prophets speak back to that as you go further into the Pentateuch and you read the story of the Exodus, you quickly see how central of a role that story will play from then on to the end. And even as we already saw this morning, even with that simple mention of a garden, you are reminded that it is that image, that paradise, 
that plays its reoccurring themes throughout Scripture as mankind desperately tries to get back to Eden, desperately tries to get back to that tree, desperately tries to get back to that life. And as you come to the end of the story, you realize, oh, that's the end. It began in that garden, and it will ultimately end in an exponentially greater garden. In all of these themes, and all of these pictures, we see things that, that take root in Genesis, that take root in the Pentateuch. And we understand then the significance of these books. Even beyond that place in the canon and the significance it plays, we understand the significance of the author of Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch. Many of you perhaps already know that author is none other than Moses, one of the most famous figures in the Old Testament. Now there's a number of reasons why we believe Moses is the author of Genesis. One of the main reasons being that the rest of Scripture seems to assume that Moses wrote the book of Genesis and elsewhere and other books in the Pentateuch. One of the most clear examples of this, and perhaps one of the most helpful for us this morning, comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Turn with me, if you will, over to John. In John chapter 5. In a conversation that Jesus has so frequently with Jewish leaders over the realities of the law, over the nature of Moses. Jesus gives them this word. In John chapter 5, we'll pick it up in verse 44 through 47. There Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Time and time again, this is the way Jesus refers to the Old Testament, the writings of Moses. And anytime he or the other New Testament authors refer to the writings of Moses, they're talking about the Pentateuch. They're talking about these first five books of the Bible and they're clearly attributing authorship to that great figure. Now for those of you interested in getting into some of the more nitty-gritty details as to why we accept and believe the fact that Moses was the author, it is perhaps of some interest of you to know that, that there is also evidence within the Pentateuch that Moses wrote it. You see references made in books like Deuteronomy in which we're told in chapter 31 that Moses is recording everything that's happening. But what's even perhaps more fascinating, at least in my own mind, is the way that the language Moses uses gives away the fact that the author must have been very well educated, a very good communicator, and he must have been very, very familiar specifically with Egypt. The languages of Egypt, the customs of Egypt. We don't have time to explore these things this morning, but as you read through the book of Genesis even, you see certain phrases that, that are taken directly from Egyptian language, phrases like bowing the knee and kissing the king, and it's things that are taken directly out of Egyptian language. In a similar way, in the wanderings in the wilderness, the, the author has a clear, really, expertise of the flora and fauna of the plants, of that which is found close to Egypt, but the closer they get to the promised land, there's, there's a lack of familiarity. And critics read this and they say, well, it's clear that the author knew a lot more about Egypt than he knew about these other places. Similarly, the author of these books references ancient practices in Egypt, practices that really would have required an eyewitness account. That same level of detail is seen in the way that the author describes wanderings of the wilderness. And again, even critics of Scripture say, well, this must have come from the pen of someone who was there, who lived it. And of course, these critics will suggest all sorts of other authors. Typically, it's a collection of authors. But ultimately, those of us who are familiar with the story of Moses, I think can easily walk away understanding that the Moses is clearly the best case scenario or the best um, argument to make for authorship. For Moses lived a life that would have allowed him to do all these things. You read about this even in the New Testament where his life is remembered. In that way, consider the words of Hebrews. In fact, turn with me over to Hebrews. And you see one of the reasons why it makes sense to say Moses did these things. In Moses chapter, or in Moses, in Hebrews chapter 11, we see this great hero praised. In verses 23 all the way through 29. 
There, the author of Hebrews says this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not, af- and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch him. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Again, in these few words, you see the resume of Moses and why it would have made sense for him to do these things. For Moses, while he eventually left Egypt, grew up where? In Egypt. And not just uh, in Egypt, where specifically was Moses raised? In the household of Pharaoh. We're told in the book of Acts that Moses had access to the greatest education available in the world at that time. And so there's good reason why Moses would be able to write with the great amount of skill and intelligence that the, the, the Pentateuch is written in. In the same way, there's a reason why Moses would have such an exhaustive knowledge of Egyptian language, of Egyptian customs, of Egyptian flora and fauna, because he was taught by the greatest teachers in Egypt. Following that incredible upbringing, we see his resume just continue to build as he demonstrates his amazing faith in God, of course. And we see that that it was Moses who, of course, was the eyewitness to all these things. It was Moses who spoke with God. It was Moses who received the law directly from God that he then penned and put into the stone tablets. In all of these things, from the moment he was born, throughout his entire adult life, Moses is clearly the one who best fits the description of this author. And when you understand how revered Moses was to everyone following him, when you understand how heroic of a figure he was rightly seen in the history of Israel and even in the New Testament, how much they adored Moses, you see even how much more significant these books, his great works, become. You understand why the Israelites in particular would have held these books, books like Genesis, as the most valuable text, as their greatest foundation. And you would understand, of course, and you can imagine how eagerly the original audience would have received this great work. That brings us then to our third and final point regarding the historical historical text, that final point being the audience of Genesis and the Pentateuch. And again, this one doesn't take a great deal of education to perhaps guess. We can probably guess who Moses wrote these books for, right? Who, who was the original audience? It was Israel. Many of us, I think, can quickly imagine that. What many of us miss, however, is why these books would have been so pivotal for them to receive the moment they received it. But again, to understand that, just take a step back and remember who the author was, Moses. When did Moses die? Before entering into the promised land. The life of Moses ends before the people begin the conquest in the land of Canaan. Which means, when did Moses write these books? In the wilderness. As the people of God are about to face their greatest challenge in their short history. For they are about to enter into that land of Canaan. And so as an audience, they are facing an incredible challenge set before them. And as Moses helps prepare them for that challenge, what lessons is he reminding them of? It's lessons about their origin. It's lessons about who God is. It's lessons about what God has brought them out already. It's lessons about where he's taking them. It's lessons about how they're to live once they enter into that land. Everything that is about to happen to the Israelites is is found here in the Pentateuch. Every single one of their greatest challenges is something they're being prepared to face here in the Pentateuch. And if they would simply listen to these words of Moses, they are promised they would be able to live long and peaceful in the land set before them. And so this audience, Israel, faced a significant challenge and as such needed this unique text. Now, of course, we are not Israel. 
nor do we simply take over all the promises of Israel. And yet, when you take a step back and appreciate that greater story that was unfolding and the historical moment in which the Pentateuch in which Genesis was written, I think we quickly understand how we find ourselves in not that dissimilar of a place. For we as the people of God find ourselves currently in the wilderness. We find ourselves in a place that that is not quite our home. We find ourselves as those individuals that have been rescued out of slavery, not that much unlike the people of Israel rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And we find ourselves daily anticipating entrance into what? The kingdom of heaven. And as we wander in this wilderness, then we daily need a reminder as to how we're supposed to live. We daily needed a reminder as to who we are, where we've come from, where we're headed. And it should be no surprise to us then that as we read throughout the entirety of Scripture that the, the authors of the Bible go back time and time and time and time again to these themes. These themes of creation, these themes of sin, these themes of redemption. All these things are aimed not simply to create some apologetic argument, not simply to create some fun story that we can put on a felt board for little kids, but it's aimed at us to remind us what foundation we stand upon and why we can be so confident in where we're headed. Having said that, we then understand that Moses is not simply writing Genesis as a historical document. He's writing it to teach, to inspire, to guide. And to that end, then, we come to this second point, which is our study of theology. And in this, we think of the themes that we will explore in Genesis 1 through 11, although these themes, of course, will be carried out throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. As we look at these themes, we'll see really three things I want us to understand. Those things being our God, ourselves, and our hope. The first and most important theme, then, is that theme of our God. Who is God? And it's with great importance that we see that it is this theme that opens the first chapter of Genesis 1-1. Again, we read these words earlier, but here I want to read verses 1 through 5. As Moses begins this account and says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. We'll, of course, explore this passage more fully next time we are in Genesis but from the very beginning, we understand that in answering the question of who is God, the author of Genesis, Moses, needs us to understand that God is our creator. Not just our creator, but the creator of everything. And unlike so many, if not all other ancient myths that explore this theme of creation, the God of the Bible is not pictured as struggling over this work nor is he viewed as warring with other gods who are attempting to show their power. Now, from the beginning, God demonstrates that he alone is God. That he alone can simply speak, and there's light. He can simply speak, and there is creation. We read already earlier in our time of worship when we looked at Psalm 149, of how often other psalmists and other pa passages reference this, this primary theme of Genesis, this theme of God's role as creator. For so frequently in books like Isaiah and others, God questions his people and he says, do you not know who I am? I am your creator. You read through the book of Job and what does God constantly reference to Job when putting Job in his place? He says, do you not know who I am, Job? Where were you when I created all of this? Again, throughout all these books, you see this, this theme of God as our creator as being primary because it's this theme that shows that God rules everything. That God has the right over your soul, over your possessions, over everything. He owns you. There's not a thing you can do about it. Now, at first glance, that reality seems pretty troubling. 
And that trouble only perhaps increases when you continue to go through the book of Genesis and you see God is not just created as a, uh, seen as a creator, but God is pictured as our judge. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. For in Genesis 3, again, a passage many of us have heard, but a passage that is vital to understand the nature of our God. We see in verses 14 through 24 how after giving his creation the orders by which they're to live, the standards by which they're to live, and having seen his creation fall short and sin against him, we have this famous curse that God brings down upon creation. And we won't read all of it, but at beginning in verse 14 of Genesis 3, we read, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than any all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree from which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, from the, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These are the words not just of a creator, but of a judge. And it is impossible to, to overstate the level of power and authority that this judge rules with. For he doesn't just say, that's it, guys. Life is going to be hard now. He gives details as to how hard it will be. He controls childbirth. He controls the level of pain. He brings this curse down upon us that, that speaks to the toil and the ground, that, that speaks to how difficult work will be made. The judge here sovereignly executes this judgment that touches every square inch of this creation. And of course, in our world today, people might be quick to say, well, who on earth does this God think he is? But of course, we understand already from the first theme, well, this is the creator. He's the owner, so he has the right to do with what he owns. And again, we'll see this theme carried on throughout Genesis. You see this theme constantly throughout the prophets as God speaks of his sovereignty and judging the nations, both those who are for him and those who are against him. You see in the New Testament as Jesus speaks of this judgment being used both for the good of his people but also for the damnation of his enemies. God can do this because he's a judge and God is a judge that we see immediately in Genesis. This is not the only picture we have of God, however. He's not simply creator or even just judge, but God incredibly is also pictured as a redeemer in this text. And we'll explore these themes of redemption. We're even in the midst of great sin and disobedience. Even in the midst of that passage we just read in Genesis chapter 3, God gives this, this glimmer of hope. That hope which is found in chapter 3 verse 15 when he speaks of this future seed, this future figure who will crush the head of the serpent who we understand from later texts will defeat Satan. Who will be better than the first Adam. He will be the second Adam and as a representative of humanity he will save us. This theme is most heavily emphasized in the person of Abraham and we won't spend much time on Abraham but we'll certainly get to him. And what we see from these texts is regardless of how great these people are, the greatness truly be, be, uh, belongs to God. For it's God who brings redemption. Just as it was God who spoke us into existence, just as God who judges, it is God who redeems. And he does all of this as the sovereign king over all creation. From the very beginning of scripture, brothers and sisters, we see the theme of Genesis, and indeed the theme of all Scripture, is set in stone. It's the theme of God's glory. It's the theme that says, God is God and you are not. And so God can do whatever he pleases. This is a vitally important point to understand. You can imagine how important it would have been for the Israelites as they're awaiting their entrance into the promised land where they'll hear of all sorts of other gods. As they hear of those other gods, it will be vital for them to remember that no, God trumps all those so-called gods. They're nothing. They saw it in the Exodus and they continue to see it in the promised land, even though they fail to acknowledge it time and time again. 
they failed to acknowledge that from the beginning, the most important theme of God's revealed word is his glory. And having said that, of course, Genesis does not just explore that theme, for as I mentioned already, it also explores that theme of, of who we are, not just our God, but ourselves. And throughout these chapters, as we'll see in the coming weeks, we'll explore both our universal identity, that which we share with everyone, as well as our particular identity as the sons and daughters of Abraham. That universal identity that is so central to how we understand our daily lives is found in passages like Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Again, a passage that is so familiar to us, yet so easy to forget. In those verses we read in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you, and to every beast of the field, and every bird of the sky, to every living thing that moves on earth which has life, I have given the green plant for food. And so it was. Here again we find verses that are probably so familiar to so many of us. Verses that speak the beauty of humanity. Verses that speak of this humanity that every single one of us shares, regardless of your faith in Christ, you are made in the image of God. Regardless of where you stand before him in that moment, you possess something that makes you distinct and unique from the rest of creation, for you were made in his image. You reflect his character, who he is at his core. And as such, every single person must be treated in response to that truth. This is why James says, in James chapter 3, that it is so utterly wicked for people who profess faith in Christ to then turn and curse a man made in his image. James says that is ridiculous. A genuine believer cannot do that. This is why in our study of 1 John, John makes such a big deal of how we treat others because they are our brothers, our sisters, ultimately. John, like James, draws this language not from the Gospels, not from some other newer book in the New Testament. They're drawing this from Genesis. This is why we too today desperately need to return to this foundation for we live in a world in which I think it's safe to guess, safe to understand, that people seem to have forgotten this basic fact. For people treat each other and speak to one another as if we are all cattle. People dismiss others with slanderous words and they pretend it's okay because, well, they're not a believer or they were mean to me. Now, as believers, we come back to this foundation and we say, no, I can't tolerate that. This is why we speak out against, say, abortion, for it's the image of God being destroyed. This is why we speak out against racism, for it's speaking out wickedly against someone made in the image of God. We do this not because of some modern invention, but because of Genesis 1. We do this for the same reason why it was so essential for the nation of Israel to do this as they enter into the promised land, as they understand the world that they live in. But of course, Genesis doesn't just speak of our universal identity, it speaks also to that particular identity, doesn't it? For we're not just mankind. We are ultimately, as Genesis will explore, sons and daughters of Abraham, we are set apart. And again, Genesis explores this. Genesis builds up this foundation, and throughout the books of the law and the Pentateuch, Moses reminds the people why they are to live the way they are to live. They look differently, they act differently because they were saved. They do this because their identity is privileged for their sons and daughters of the king. And while we will not explore these themes as fully, for we will not explore the rest of Genesis verses tw chapters 12 through the end, we too are reminded of this foundational message of our particular identity and who we are. We're reminded that we're different, first and foremost because of Christ, but also because it stems back to these same promises in Genesis. We explore these things because they remind us who we are, where we've been and where we're headed. And we glory in that. 
But when we lose the language of Genesis, we lose so much of that beauty, so much of that reasoning. And so we explore who our God is. We explore who we ourselves are and ultimately, beautifully, we explore the, this third theme of our hope. For as the people of God received this book originally, where were they? Where was Israel sitting when they would have been handed these scrolls for the first time? Are they in the promised land enjoying the fruits of their labor? No. They're on the outside looking in. They're awaiting that entrance and you can imagine the sort of anxiety they must have been building up that you can imagine what they must have hoped to explore and, and experience upon entering into the promised land. You can imagine the sort of hope that they had of what that promised land would mean to them. For those people of God in Israel, circa 1400 BC, understood something that people still understand today. And that is the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The people of God had been brought out of Egypt, but they were living in the wilderness, and that wasn't what they had signed up for. Even after they entered into the land of Canaan, things did not necessarily immediately get better. They experienced some moments of peace, but still, things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way they expected them to be. In the same way, we live in a world in which every single one of us can acknowledge this fact. Again, regardless of your faith, regardless of your understanding of Scripture, I trust you can look around you at the world and say, I really feel like things could be better than this. Does that not explain the amount of turmoil we see in our culture? Does not explain how passionate people are over whatever passions they explore? They're passionate, and they do things that we might see as, see as ludicrous because they desperately want something to change. They know something needs to be different, but they don't understand the key to that solution. They don't understand how to make things right. They know they long for a paradise. They just don't know where it is. And so they're seeking to create it on their own terms, by their own laws, by their own standards. This is a reality that, of course, Genesis understands fully, but more importantly, what Genesis reminds us of is that universal problem, that which everyone understands, has a very unique, a very distinct solution. That solution and ultimately the hope that carries out throughout the rest of the book of Genesis and even throughout all the pages of Scripture is again that which we already read. For in Genesis chapter 3, within this language of the curse, God offers this veiled promise when speaking to Satan, says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In those few words, we see, of course, that first veiled reference to this coming hope. What we see here is that first veiled reference that is then picked up again with Abraham. What we see is their ultimate hope, both for Israel as well as for the nations, was never the hope of just another garden. It was never the hope of just a new land. It was the hope of someone who could deliver them from it all. Who could bring this, this everlasting quality to peace, to security. And if nothing else, what the pages of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers explore and demonstrate is that person was clearly not just one of their patriarchs. It wasn't Moses because he failed miserably in a pretty big way and that's why he didn't get into the promised land. It wasn't Abraham. You move on throughout the rest of the pages of scripture, you understand it was none of those heroes, not David, not Solomon, none of these great figures. No, they needed something more and as the people of God would have gone back to Genesis and read this promise, they would have no doubt wondered who would this seed be? As the prophets spoke of that coming Messiah, the question inevitably would have been who was that seed going to be. Of course, what we understand from the entirety of Scripture is that seed that is promised and this firm foundation in Genesis is ultimately the seed and the stump of Jesse that blossoms and flourishes from which the Messiah and the line of David comes, that Messiah, of course, being Jesus Christ. He was the long-awaited 
Messiah. He was the one long foretold as far back as Genesis 3. And so as we explore Genesis, we see again that hope begin to germinate. We see that hope begin to grow. And we're reminded of the fact that this still remains our only hope today. Not in politics, not in personal relationships, not in a secure nation, but in Jesus Christ and the kingdom he's already established. He is the one that saves. And he's the one that will ultimately bring us into that long-awaited promised land, the kingdom of heaven, where we will reside forever. As we consider all of these things, both in terms of theology and history, there, there's so many truths that can be gleaned from these chapters that are probably seemingly so familiar to you and yet so much more complex than meets the eye. It's important that from the beginning we establish the fact that for both believers and unbelievers alike, Genesis is vitally important because this is the story of everything. This is the story of everyone. It's not some carefully crafted story that we as Christians come up with to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. You certainly don't feel better about yourself from reading about humanity anywhere in Scripture. No, this is the story of everyone. And so unbeliever, as well as believer alike, let us remember and see that in these chapters, we find our true origin story. And that matters. It matters where you came from. It matters that you're made in the image of God because you lose that and you lose all sense of integrity. You lose that and you lose the reason why you are so precious. You must see it here in Genesis. In the same way, looking through the lens of Genesis, you, unbeliever, are able to see why there are so many struggles today. Why things are not the way they're supposed to be. And it's not because of some politician you dislike or because you have a teacher you don't like or because you don't like your family. It's because you're cut off from your creator. It's because of Adam and the sinful inheritance you've received. And so, unbeliever, as you understand that origin story and as you understand the reason why we struggle as it is defined in Scripture, namely in Genesis, I pray that ultimately you also understand through that lens of Genesis what your only hope is, that hoping Jesus Christ. And so I pray and I beseech you, as I say every week, that today you turn to Christ you repent of your sin and that you understand that it is only in Jesus Christ in which Satan ultimately is crushed in which sin is defeated in which you receive the life that you so desperately desire as a creature made in the image of our creator. Please let me know if you have any questions of that after the service. I'll be in the lobby and happy to speak with you. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, again, let us remember that this again is the story of us. Yes, it's first and foremost written for the Israelites, but it's just as important to us today because it reminds us who we are. We are made in the image of the almighty, gracious creator of the universe. And we are called his children, believer. His sons, his daughters. Are we treating one another like that? Are we speaking of others in a way that reflects that knowledge? Are we thinking of others in a way that reflects that appreciation? In Genesis, we're reminded why it's so important. In Genesis, we're also reminded of where we are and why things are the way we, they are. So frequently as believers, we can get caught up in our frustrations of the world and we ask questions like, oh, why are things so terrible? But we just need to look around and realize we're in the wilderness just like Israel was. And so, of course, things will feel terrible at times because we're in a dark world where we'll be persecuted, where there's still death, where there's still disease, where there's still fighting both externally and internally within the church. And so let us take comfort from that reminder in Genesis. Let us take comfort and reminder that we read these pages of Scripture, spiritually speaking, in a similar state to that of Israelites. And just as it was vitally important for the Israelites to understand these things in light of where they were about to enter, let us remember, believer, where we ourselves are headed. Let us glean and absorb as much information as we possibly can from these pages. Let us memorize this text. Let us see the world through the lens of Moses so that 
when we come to the very end of the story, in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, and as we read of this river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the Lamb of God, coming in the middle of the street, as we read of this tree of life, as we read that there will no longer be any curse, we will read it with new eyes. For as a result of understanding Genesis and the books that come after, we read those words standing firmly on this foundation. And we're able to appreciate the beauty of John's vision. And we're able to respond in the way that John hoped his readers would respond, glorifying God who deserves all glory, praising him, and eagerly awaiting his return. Brothers and sisters in Christ and all of us, I pray that this study proves to be a great encouragement to all of us. And I pray that at the end of it all, we all might stand more firmly on that foundation that is rooted not in our own personal thoughts, but in the revealed word of God, which begins in Genesis. Let's close in prayer as the band comes out. Father in heaven, we love you, God. And even as we explored the themes of Genesis this morning, we understand how, how glorious you are how powerful you are as it's displayed in creation, how beautifully loving you are as it's displayed in your act of redemption. God, so easy it is to get, it, 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 so, so often it's easy to get caught up in our own story, in our own narrative, and fail to appreciate the much grander narrative in which we are all living. And so God, I pray that in the coming weeks and indeed months, we might find ourselves more and more quickly in this narrative, in this text. Might we more and more identify with this language of Moses than we identify with the language of our culture. And as a result, God, might we walk with more confidence. Might we walk in more obedience. Might we walk glorifying you. Might we do it all standing firm on the foundation of your word, God. We love you so much, God. And we praise you all in Jesus Christ's name, amen.